greet you all in the name of our Lord and Savior. Also, welcome to any of you that feel as you're a visitor here. We thank you that you can be with us. We trust you that you can worship and share and praise and glory to God for all that he has done. We have much to be thankful for. And I can say I've been blessed this morning, not only the Sunday school lesson, but when I came in this morning, I looked at the front of the bulletin. And um, the reason I'm saying this is because I'm, I'm somewhat nervous about what I'm going to preach on. And uh, it, it hinted a little bit about it in the front here. And I thought, well, that uh, gave me a little bit of comfort. And also to think of the Sunday school lesson as in... Am I going to be a comfort in preaching to you, or am I going to be a critic? I'm not going to be either. I I just want the Word of God to be the comfort of the critic to you. I I just want to bring that um, to you this morning. We are blessed to have the Word among us and so freely uh, with us that that's what gives us direction and and, um, guidance in our life. So for the sermon this morning, raise your hand if you know what Tuesday is. Oh, quite a few of you do. All right, I'm one that kind of doesn't catch on as quick. And the next thing you know, it's Valentine's Day, and my wife may have been wishing she would have got something because I don't always um, do the traditional, I guess you would say, with with things. But um, nonetheless, I had... um, another uh, speaking assignment, and so a couple things were kind of going through my mind. But today, you may turn in your Bible to the Song of Solomon. Now, when we think of the Song of Solomon, there's lots of things that go through your mind. And just to be um, open, and as we all know, there's some... uh, detailed and uh, human terms given in this book that we don't always know what to do with. And the object this morning is not to so much look at verses, but to understand why this book was written and what the purpose is for. And so we are going to look, I, I debated with a handout. Because I didn't really understand this book. You start reading a couple verses growing up and you just go, I don't know what that is. You just kind of go to the next book in the Bible and and you sort of look over it. You don't really dive into it. I like more favored myself the New Testament. There's uh, with studying Greek, you can kind of do word studies and understand that. This is all in Hebrew. (coughs) And (coughs) so to understand what these... Words are is somewhat of a, of a pun because we'll get into it later that you may be able to understand them in multiple ways. It might be um, <clears throat> able to be taken in more than one way, <clears throat> which is what I, what I think so. But I want to start with Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to at least get this, this part figured out. It reads, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And that's all it says, but that is the introduction to the rest of the book. 
in studying the, the Hebrew for Song of Solomon's or what could be given for the title of this book, and interestingly in the NIV, it calls this book of the Bible, instead of the Song of Solomon, it calls it the Song of Songs. And I saw that, oh, even in the past years, and I never stopped to really go, well, why did they call it the Song of Songs instead of Song of Solomon? Like, you don't just change the title of a book in the Bible. But in this case, we can, because the Song of Solomon is simply a Song of Solomon. As we know, in 1 King 4.32, he was a writer, we could turn there, of 1,005 songs. And the Song of Solomon, it, it's given that because it is one of his songs. Now, the reason the NIV or the other uh, references would give Song of Songs is because this is picked out as one of Solomon's best. And as you think of the phrases King of Kings or Lord of Lords, that's maybe a different, uh, you know, as we think of talking about God. But in this case, you would call this, this is the Song of Songs. It is the one. And it is a song Possibly, or probably by Solomon, but it is probably about Solomon, and it could have been for Solomon. There's some, some things there that they, they guess, it, I mean, they assume it's Solomon was the one that wrote it, but there's some disagreement on that that's kind of neither here nor there. Um, we have it here in our Bible, and that's really what matters. So, what is the Song of Songs? I'm going to refer to it as that because... That gets a little more in-depth into what this book is. It's simply a love story, kind of from one end to the other. Um, it, it's, it's just full of um, interaction between a, a man and a woman. But instead of just two characters, there's actually three characters. There's a little bit I was unsure of or unaware of. And in some of the other um, studying, you have, I, this is what I call it, and you don't really see it, depending how your Bible has it broke down, it could be written in different ways, but you have a lover, you have a beloved, and you have friends. The lover is probably Solomon, or we could say a bridegroom, or the the character, you know, as such. The beloved would be given reference in through the book a Shulamite maiden. Or what we would call the bride or anything kind of related to that in a relationship. And friends are simply the ones watching this relationship. And so this is set up as a, a song or a poem in the way people write poetry or songs. They have a lot more to it than what you might just get by reading it. So it's looked at in a couple of different ways as like an allegorical song or poem. And the ways to interpret it then, of course, get into a lot of problems because if you want to interpret it literal or if you want to interpret it as 
allegorical or metaphorical, like it represents a lot of things. So if you're going to interpret it literal, you would take it for what the words say in Song of Solomon. That's what they mean, and there's nothing else to it. It's strictly a reference or account of a man and woman in love, enjoying the physical characteristics of each other, and communicating their thoughts and emotions with each other. If you, if you interpret it literal, there's no trying to figure out what the underlying meaning is. If you take it literal, there's no underlying meaning. But the other way is allegorical. You can say, and this is what gets into trouble. You could say it represents Jehovah's love for Israel. Or it represents the love of Christ for his church. And those things may or may not be. It, it's, um, like I say, it can go uh, pretty far. And I have down here, this view has to deal with the interpretations, obviously, like what you want to read into it, of which some could be far-fetched. <laughs> and if you want uh, safety in any book of the Bible, go to Song of Solomon's, and you can say about anything, and nobody will fault you for it, because there is room in Song of Solomon if you take it uh, at a, as an allegorical way. And that's obviously the way I do. I don't... I. Um, I can't just take these verses and say it only means just what it says. But some people would. They say you better stop with that and not go into too many things. So I think there's obviously a balance between the two. But one other uh, way, thing I came across was it says there's room for it to be a love story of a country maiden falling in love with a shepherd. And you have kind of a back and forth as the relationship comes and goes and the shepherd eventually, you know, being smitten with her love and the shepherd taking her to be his own. I think I have that right. At least you know what I meant by it anyway. Taking her to be his own and then if you want to say how the fairy tales go, they live happily ever after, which you don't know. But um, I'm not quite sure where that comes from, except for my Bible does give... References of shepherd. And how you want to take that and go with that, you could. Uh, I don't necessarily go that way a whole lot myself, but it does does give some. Now, another uh, underlying theme that comes through is the idea of how love would start and where it would end up as. So you, the idea that this song of, uh, song of songs or this poem could be the progression of love from acquaintance and I just remembered something I wanted to say um, there may be people here that aren't married I understand that and I want to say learn whatever you can from this there's ways to take it allegorical but I wanted to not ignore any of you that aren't married here this morning um, scripture is for all of us and you can learn but in my mind I am kind of zeroed in on the husband and wife. That's going to probably come through pretty obvious in this. There's an idea given in this that starts as acquaintance. The first time you saw the one maybe that you're married to now, your mind would go back to that. When you first saw her, to the friendship that kind of started, to the courtship or the dating. And as the relationship kept going, you became engaged and you planned for a wedding and then you were married. Um, 
There's some things that uh, indicate that kind of from one end to the other in this book. And then we also have down, uh, in my mind I wrote it down here, or in my notes, Solomon may have written Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, in his younger years, and then Ecclesiastes in his middle-aged years, and then Proverbs when in his latter years. Now, I would tend to argue with that a little bit, but I think they're probably right. If you are there in your Bible in Song of Solomon, just turn to chapter 6, verse 9. And there's one thing here that is gives me a little glimmer of hope for Solomon because of how hard we are on him and all the women that he had. But in verse 9 of chapter 6, it says, My dove, my undefiled, is but one. And the word undefiled there would mean, and in my uh, reference, it would say perfect one. And I think even if Solomon didn't follow through with it, it gives indication here that he would have said the ideal way is to have one perfect one. And if you have one perfect one, why would you want any other ones? I, I don't know why, but he did. And just a uh, just an odd note on that, Solomon with his wealth was able to purchase so many wives. I, I come across that and I never thought about it. If you were poor, you wouldn't have been able to have wives because you didn't have enough resources to buy or to go through with how they did it. Solomon could because of his wealth. And that, uh, I think, got him in trouble somewhat. But anyway, it, I want to point out that even though Solomon, whether he wrote it when he was young or when he was old, he does kind of single out that it hints towards there just being one. And that's the way we know of it in the New Testament about um, being married to one. So let's look at Song of Solomon. I want you to open your Bible. It's going to be a little bit different uh, in, in breaking down all the verses. I'm just, what I, what I concluded with was just a short summary of each of the sections as this story goes. So you basically are going to go back and forth between who it's talking about. And my reference is it's the beloved. That's the girl, if you want to say, or the woman. And you have the lover, which if you want to say is Solomon, for simplicity, I think that's what we'll do. And then we have the friends. And so I'm not reading any verses, but I wanted to give you the same thing that I learned is why this is the way it is in the Song of Solomon. It's simply a dialogue. It's a back and forth between, just like any of you that when you were dating or what you would, one would say something, the next one, oh, say this back, and, and you go back and forth. Now, I don't know how long this took. Uh, obviously, it's a poem or a psalm that covers a lot of time, but this this gave me a new, different kind of view of the book, at least for taking it in this case, in a literal sense of like what the verses are, you know, kind of are, are representing as they go through. So let's start. And we did read verse one. So we're going to have to say verses two to four is where we're going to start. And you can see them there in your Bible. This would be the beloved from verse two to four. Her longing and desires that the king uh, would choose her. And we would maybe take that as King Solomon. And then at the end of verse 4, 
it would be talking about the friends rejoice to see this one girl or maiden be a, uh, like love starting to grow in this person in this in this uh, in this maid. That would be at the in the end of verse four, and yet the end of verse the way far the end of verse four. It's kind of tough to know who's talking where, but the beloved again talks and. From the end of verse 4, 4c, if you want to say it, through verse 7, she tells her lover why she looks the way she does, but she also asks to be with him. She, she hints at that, that you know, she wants to be with him. And the, in verse 8, the, the friends, they say, they give their support to, to go with the lover. And then the lover, in verses 9 to 11, comments of what he thinks she looks like. And the beloved then talks in verses chapter 1, 12 to 14. She gives her expression of pleasure to simply be with him. And then in verse 15, the lover simply affirms her beauty. The beloved in verse 16, she says how handsome he is. The lover in verse 17 points out how pretty the place is. And in chapter 2, we start in again, some back and forth. doesn't always go quite this quick, but um, if you can keep following in your, in your Bible, in your references, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, uh, declares that she is only a common field flower. She's just a, a nobody kind of, just a simple flower. And in uh, verse 2, the lover says, but you're uh, a lily among the thorns. And in verse uh, 3, then that follows all the way to 13. So that's a get jumping into more sections here, or big, larger sections. So uh, from verse 3 to 13, you'd have, She delights in him and expresses desire to go with him. Then we would have 14 and 15. Chapter 2 tells her that love is blooming. In chapter 2, 16 through 3.11. So I'll probably just use verses or uh, numbers like 2.16 through 3.11. If you can follow along with that. Her literal dreams of the relationship. Her praise of his splendor. And then that would be uh, through the end of chapter 3. We have um, the beloved in verse 4. Chapter, sorry, 4, 1 through 15. His confession of her beauty and also him comparing her to a beautiful garden. And in verse 16, the beloved freely gives permission for him to come into his garden. And these are a couple verses quick back and forth. 5, 1 gives confirmation of being in his garden. And 5.1b is the friends give encouragement for them to experience love to the fullest. Then the beloved in 5.2-8 is her total involvement in love, whether sleeping or awake. And then the friends in 5.9, they ask why she is lovesick for him and not anyone else. And 5, 10 through 16, 
she gives her answer as to why he is the chiefest among 10,000. And then the friends in uh, 6.1, they notice that he is missing and want to help find him. And then the beloved in uh, 6, 2, and 3, she says she knows where he went. And then we have the lover in uh, 6, verses 4 to 9, acknowledge her beauty and describes her as the perfect one. I alluded that to that back uh, in the beginning. And then we have the friends in 6.10, commenting on how outstanding she is. And the lover uh, there in 6, uh, 11 and 12 uh, looks for more growth or new things or um, I just have new growth of, in their love. And then uh, the friends in 13 or 613A, they want to see her, which kind of ends there, I guess. But the lover comes back in 13B. 613b through 7.9, so it's going to be a number of verses there, describes physically how she is to him. And in 7.10, the beloved, uh, in 7.10 through 8.4, her understanding of her belonging to him. And the friends uh, in 8.5 see more progression of the relationship. And the beloved in 8, 6, and 7 is saying these things, and it's basically the passion or the rage, the characteristics of love. Those are some familiar verses that we've heard of a lot in 6 and 7 there. And then the friends uh, are in 8 and 9. Chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, the reflection on the development of love, kind of how it started and, and how it went about. And then in uh, the Beloved, in 8, uh, verses 10 to 12, she has found peace and contentment with him. And then uh, the lover, in 8, 13, wants to hear her voice in the gardens. And the last voice would be the Beloved, uh, her continued desire for him. And it kind of ends just like that. And that's all that's to it. But you can't just stop there and say, well, that's all it is. It's like, well, now what? What are you going to learn from this? And I'm not so sure as I really have... I I have my things that I would like to share with you, but... uh, and the first thing, we'll get to that real quick, like, and, it's, and one thing that came through my mind, there are many ways to interpret these verses, and it allows for room for all marriages. So you can't get away from the Song of Solomon because it's dealing with you, regardless of how your marriage is. There's something in Song of Solomon for your marriage, whether you like it or not. And whether you're one of the 20-plus marriages here in our church, or whether you're one of the millions of marriages that exist in the world, this fits all of them. You can't um, get away from what's 
in here because it does apply to you in one way or the other. Even though some marriage might be totally way over here, you would think, and maybe in my mind, I'm way over here. Like People are different. You don't have identical marriages. It's sometimes marveling to me the mindset of marriages and what they do. But Song of Solomon applies to all of those. And so <clears throat> I can state that along with the, these are things I learned from it. And you are more than free. You are welcome. You are, I should say, you are supposed to take things your way for your marriage. But I just want to give a few um, that I have of interest in some of these verses here that I, I did pull out just a few, few verses that um, I think are pretty neat um, in this. And so the first one I have is... Um, 2, 3b, so chapter 2, verse 3, if you want to turn there, you can. And it says, I'm going to start right after uh, among the sons, could read the whole thing, but there's a period there, and it says, in the end of verse 3 in chapter 2, it says, I sat down under his shadow with great delight. Just taking that phrase right out of the middle of the verse there. I sat down under his shadow with great delight. And shadow could also mean shade. Um, it gives reference that you're with, you're together. You can't have shade from a tree that's far away. Like you're, you're under it, you're with it. And this would be a shadow. With great delight. It's, it's common sense, I don't even have to tell you. But your spouse is the one you want to be with the most. You delight in that shadow when you're together. Another one that is kind of confusing to me, I guess my mind isn't able to quite comprehend it all, is in 2-4, uh, so just down just a little bit. It's a very common phrase that we know of, um, at least in some songs. At the end of verse 4, it says, His banner over me was love. Now, I'm going to quick to point out why they say was love, I don't know. But you, you go to the NIV or maybe some other translation that says is love. So don't take this as it's history and it's over and done with. No, it's still ongoing. It just says uh, in, the, in the way that uh, things are interpreted, that's just the way it came out. So the NIV would state, banner over me is love. But what's a banner? I was kind of vague about it, didn't really know, but... And, and it also references a banner in, uh, you don't have to turn to it, but 6, 4b and 10b, and verses in chapter 6, would, would give indication about, um, it says, terrible as an army with banners. I'm just pulling that phrase out. And also later in verse 10 it says, and terrible as an army with banners. So it, it says it twice about banners. And as near as I know or can kind of tell, it was just a way of identifying and maybe even a military term of when they had their camp set up and they put a flag up and said, hey, this is whatever country or whatever they're representing in an army. They would say this is who it is. And then you knew that anybody that's in there was identified by that, whatever was outside, the flag or a banner or something. And so um, you, could, you could almost say a banner would be the same as a flag, but... In the old 
Bible ways. I don't know if they actually used a flag and had it flying like we know today. They might have done it in a different way, and I think that's where the, where the word banner's coming from. But she feels included and is in that place where the banner over me is love. That's where my mind gets a little... Okay, I'm so used to physical things of like, okay, here's Mifflinburg, here's Lewisburg, flags up, you know, you're from there, there. But now all of a sudden it goes, this banner over me, banner over me. So you got to take who's putting this banner over you, and then it says, it's love. And you can take that and go, I, it's a lot to kind of go through. But you know what it's talking about. It's saying that he wants her and putting this, this love right over top, and you're, you're uh, included with, with me is, is the way I take it. And so that I think I'll uh, continue on with the next one. And that is another phrase that we hear quite a bit. It's given uh, three times as well in the book. It says, my beloved is mine and I am his. And as I looked at one of the advantages was knowing who wrote different verses in this was is that the wife, the maid, or I call it the wife, is the one that stated these verses all three times. And it's in 2.16, chapter 6, verse 3, and chapter 7, verse 10. The phrase is, my beloved is mine and I am his. It might not be exactly word for word, but it's it's given in that uh, meaning. And it's interesting that, that the wife is the one talking in these three verses. And I think that's significant because it's stating that she has the confidence and security that she is his. She's the one that's able to say it. And it means that she feels and understands it more than the husband simply telling it to her and the wife having doubts about it. Because if the husband says, you're mine and I love you, and does totally the opposite, the wife has to deal with the turmoil of, does he like me or doesn't he? It's just confusing. But if you can have the wife say it to the husband... It puts a little more weight to it that they can, first of all, they can actually say it, must mean they believe it, that my beloved is mine and that I am his. There's a lot of security in that. As we know of how it works in marriages, the wife needs security. And if, a, if nothing else, she can, she's stating that security because she's the one that said it all three of those times. My beloved is mine and I am his. Okay, in 2.15 is another verse that you've heard of a lot, and I just couldn't ignore it. They have to say something about it. And that is, uh, it reads like this. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. And of course, you can take a lot of interpretations on that. But really, in what uh, took place years ago was the foxes would run through vineyards right at that prime time, and they would just destroy either the bud or the bloom or the small grapes, what's it say, tender grapes, and, and ruin it. And it wasn't hard at all to do it. A fox, I mean, I, I don't know if they could destroy a whole vineyard or just, you know, rows or what, but the, the idea is, is that, uh, and, and I take it that Solomon admits that love is not without difficulties, that there's things that are going to come in and try to make problems. And 
today we obviously know you got the um, kingdom of darkness, Satan's realm. You have kingdom of light and God, and um, the two are are at odds. There, there's a battle. There's a there's things going on. Uh, 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 Jesus with life and Satan with death, and he will want to destroy. And so. Solomon is the one that holds out that Solomon is the one that said this verse. He says, uh, take us, the foxes, and that simply means to catch. So he's saying, get them foxes before they get and destroy things. And so Solomon is saying this, and I think that's significant that he's being responsible and and directing in in the marriage that... He's warning his wife. He's saying, look, we got we to gotta be careful for these things. And as we know in marriage, as little things can become big things. And then big things are obviously, they're a big deal in a marriage. Once they get to be a big thing, you, you got a big thing. Uh, whatever your big things are, um, you probably don't have any. I do. But uh, anyway, they stifle and kill the potential for love. When those little things grow big, you're not going to have a harvest of the vineyard. The grapes couldn't grow. You don't have any, uh, any crop at the end of the growing season. And he's saying, stop and catch a hold of that before it can take off and cause problems. And I have down here, only you and your spouse know what those things are. I mean, there may be signs that people could tell it, but really, you know... Husband and wife, they're the two that got to figure that out. That's, I think, the ones that I have from the verses. Now, I have just a few, um, even some more of my own, since we can kind of go places with this. These are just for you to hear about. I don't necessarily take it from doctrine from the Bible. Uh, maybe the one verse I would have depends how you do it. But you read this whole, this is one of my, not a struggle, but, you read this whole book, and Solomon is almost far-fetched. He's like, really now? I mean, if your eyes saw any of these verses in here, you're like, seriously, are, you're going to say that this is like this? And, and So, is it okay to exaggerate about your wife, to your wife? It appears like, Sol- I would say Solomon is here, but maybe not. But in our lives today, if we would follow what what Solomon wrote in here, it is okay to exaggerate about your wife to your wife. Make sure you get what I'm saying there. You may exaggerate. I could get on the right side here. You men, you may exaggerate about your wife to your wife. Solomon did. And I think you have all the rights to it as well. Now, here's a little bit what I want to get at. Teasing can be harmful. But Solomon wasn't teasing in here. Solomon, every comment he put in here was positive. It was exceeding what it could have been. It was not a negative. And teasing is always a negative. It's degrading or catching a hold of something that somebody might have a slight problem or something they're struggling with. No, there's no negative. Solomon went the other way with what I call exaggerated compliments. I asked my wife, I said, what's the word for this? When you just butter somebody up and you you just go, she's like, I don't know. I said, 
So is exaggerated compliments okay? She's like, yeah, all right, we'll use that. So exaggerated compliments from the husband to the wife is fine. And I think it's even good. If you just sat down and had a meal of hot dogs and macaroni and cheese and your wife's there and you're done eating, it's perfectly fine for you to say, that meal was fit for a king. Your wife's going to know that you just took it way out of proportion, but she's going to love every bit of it. And so what, uh, what comes from it is it's a sharing of, if you want to say the man or the husband, of his heart to the wife. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's, a, trans, there's a, a moving of something in that comment from the husband, from, yeah, from the husband to the wife. And it's good. And I can't think of any negative, I mean, hardly, you'd have to really exaggerate, but is there any negative effects if the husband exaggerates about their wife to their wife? I, Solomon does it here, and I think it's an okay pattern to follow. Even if your wife might get tired of it, she's deep down, she's still going to like it, I think. Now, let me back up. Every marriage is different, so you may do what you want. <clears throat> There's also something about for us men that when we say it, it helps confirm in our mind how we actually believe it. I put down here, it's sort of funny how that works. I, well, I'll leave it how it goes, how it is. Um, so along with exaggerated, uh, there's another one here, and it's in 5.3. And now this, I might be stretching this a little bit, but we're allowed to do that. I want to say in Song of Solomon. 5.3 says, I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? Now, reading into it here, but it seems like, and I'm not sure who is saying this. I'd have to go back here and look. I think it was her, I guess. Wash my feet. Yeah. Her. She's making some uh, excuses. Now, whether it's her or the husband or wife, I don't think it really matters. But um, I think it's perfectly fine to have some pathetic excuses sometimes between husband and wife. Uh, just like, for an example, when you were dating, why did you find lots of excuses to be with your girlfriend or boyfriend? You were just starry-eyed and in cloud nine, and you were just like, um, you'd come up with anything. If she was ever some part of the youth function, you just, you made up an excuse, or you, you would do that. And it's, you would find uh, excuses to be together. And it's a little bit different now, I know. But sometimes I think those excuses can it can invite closeness and maybe even make your heart skip a beat like it did maybe when you were dating. Some of those lame excuses, there's a reading and an understanding that just is kind of goes with it that I think can be good. Um, and so however you want to do that, you may. And if you don't, that's perfectly fine too. Just a couple more things, not too much here yet. But love is an action, and we know that. And as you take the whole book of Song of Solomon, try to understand like how, what is love and how it all fits together, it, 
I, I had to come down to one thing in this, the, the closeness that you see in the Song of Solomon. And we know that the actions of doing things is correct. That's how you love. You, it's an action. But for me, one of the hardest actions of love may possibly be the action, I'll call it that, of opening up your deepest to the one you love. Now, I didn't say deepest what. I just said your deepest. Because really, nobody knows the real you except you. Unless you are going to share that with your spouse, they're not going to know. And I think sometimes that could be one of the hardest actions of love is to open up your deepest to the one you love. Marital love is delicate and complicated, but most beautiful in the sight of God. A couple other comments here. I heard of a, uh, actually some of you would know, Chuck Swindoll. I happened to be listening to him um, and he just had a couple, three, three uh, interesting statements here. He said, reaching the deepest level of love takes commitment. It's correct. Reaching the deepest level of love, it's going to take commitment. But he said, understanding the different expressions of love takes some patience. And so you take those two, and then he adds this on the end. He said, becoming the best kind of lover takes time. And they do. That all kind of works together. But a couple other uh, statements here I wrote or thoughts of thinking of Song of Solomon. The Christian, the one who has a relationship with God, two if you want to say, a husband and wife both experiencing victory as a Christian, they should exceed in marriage more than the worldly marriages around us. There's something about a Christian understanding the love from God that he can turn around or that they can turn around and share in marriage. That should be better, I think, than the world around us in their marriages. And to try to put all those together, you have, you got to have, I mean, these are three that I think of quite a bit in marriage. You have spiritual and emotional and physical, they all need to be considered and put together to have a vibrant love in your marriage. they got to all be put together. And I think the world would maybe focus on one or the other. You've got to put all those together, the spiritual, the emotional, and the physical, to have a vibrant love. And so in conclusion, I wasn't sure quite what to, uh, what to say for the end. It's like, doesn't have a great verse at the end of the book to conclude on in itself. I just wanted you to remember that um, it's a portion of the Bible that tells of human love. However you want to take it, you may. But can we demonstrate in our marriage the same love that God has given to each of us? And I think that's where my, if, if my thought and my heart kind of was coming back in what, what is this, what's in this for me, what can I learn from this, how to help me, it's, I had to look up the verses in Ephesians, because this is really, I think, the foundation. You almost got to have Ephesians figured out before you go to Song of Solomon, maybe, but Ephesians 5.25 states, Husbands, 
Love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And then Ephesians 5.33 says, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. I think that puts the whole picture together there of what we're to do. But I'm going to end with some verses in Song of Solomon here. Go to chapter 8, the ones that are pretty common, just to think of them as we read them here at the end. Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, chapter 8, 6 and 7. They read like this, Set me as a seal upon thine heart. And I apologize for interrupting, but I wanted just to point out who's stating this, and I think it's the beloved. Maybe your Bible has it quick there. 6 and 7 is the beloved. Yep. She would be saying, Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be contemned. There's a lot of weight in them verses there. And how to understand them all, I don't know. But it's good to understand at least love that God gave to us that He allows us to experience together as, as husband and wife. Why don't we stand for prayer?